and welcome to Conversations on Climate. My name is Chris Caldwell and this series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. We sit down with the experts who are trying to solve the biggest challenge of our time before time runs out. Today we come to you from East London's tech city, the so-called Silicon Roundabout, where we're exploring the world of venture capital and climate tech. I'm delighted to be speaking to a real rising star in the world of venture capital. Amory Poulden is a founder and managing partner of the D2 Fund. Amory holds an MBA from London Business School, and after spending a few years learning the tools of the trade investment banking, he climbed rapidly through the world of corporate venture capital, most notably at Shell, to where he is today. During his time at Shell and D2, Amory has backed some really interesting companies. So we had the opportunity to dig into a number of super interesting areas. During our conversation, we covered Amory's high-flying career, leading to him raising a VC fund in his mid-30s. The D2 fund and climate tech investing, the role of sustainability in public and in private markets, the early stage investment process, corporate venture capital at Shell, the green, the black, and what it all means how helping students refine their startup ideas can help make an impact in the climate tech sector. Finally, we discussed trends in the climate tech sector and provided advice to founders and prospective venture capitalists. This conversation provided a deep exploration of the world of venture capital and the future of clean tech, one that you certainly won't want to miss. Amory, thank you so much for, for taking out the time to come and speak to us today. Not at all. Absolute pleasure to be here. Well, it's actually the first time that uh, talking to a fellow pod show host <laughs> on, the, on this. Um, listen to uh, some of your shows. Really, really interesting stuff. Highly recommend it. We'll put the, uh, the, the, the link in the notes. Um, but just to kind of get us started, there are kind of careers in uh, very much like startup companies uh, will typically have an have an inflection point, an inflection point where where you've you've got a, a choice between like kind of success and failure. Things can either go fantastically well or well or amazingly badly. Is there an inflection point in your career to date that you could tell us about? Yeah, absolutely, there is, and, and it's <laughs> it's such a cliched in, inflection point. But the inflection point for me was when I had. Our first child. I mean, my wife had our first child together. Um, and up until that point, my career had been predominantly in finance. Um, I'd been working in investment banking um, across the whole energy space, but really mainly on the oil and gas side. Um, and at that point, I had one of those, um, it was probably a quarter life crisis at that stage, um, but a bit of a, a reflection in terms of what I was doing with my career and um, what my children were ultimately going to think of me when they grew up. And so that started a kind of grand pivot away um, from traditional energy towards um, renewable, towards climate, and towards tech more broadly. Um, so that is probably the most impactful uh, zig on the path. Okay, fantastic. So that was the genesis of you looking towards um, climate and, uh, and sustainability, and also tech. Where's the intersection between cl- climate and tech? And the- Yeah, it's a great question. So I think tech at the moment is a bit of an all-encompassing term. And um, we look um, as a fund at a lot of tech-enabled businesses. I think where I draw the line is we're most interested in product-based businesses as opposed to sort of service or consultancy-based businesses. And the reason for that is product-based businesses, when they work, can scale enormously and can create a huge impact as well. Whereas service businesses um, are really uh, defined or, or have the potential 
exponential to scale more in terms of how many people, how many bodies you're adding to that. So they tend to scale more linearly. Um, so that's, I guess, the intersection between sustainability and tech for us as product-based businesses in the sustainability space. And uh, speaking of businesses, um, do you see any parallels between your own career and the types of businesses that you, lo you look at and uh, invest in? I think you see increasingly founders who are coming from different backgrounds moving into the sustainability space. Um, so I see a lot of people who appear to have gone on a similar personal journey towards the space. Um, and I think that's reflective of the entire sustainability space, the entire climate tech space more broadly becoming more mainstream. Um, and a lot of people going through that kind of awakening in terms of thinking what they're doing with their lives um, and ultimately where the next big growth area is as well. For a while, I've been thinking that uh, this is that this whole climate space is well, one. It's very important, but it's also you know the greatest wealth creation opportunity you know of our of our generation. Um, do you are you particularly interested in it? I guess the answer is probably going to be both, but because it is a wealth creation opportunity, or because it's a, it's a particular point of passion for you. Yeah, that's a great question. So. My job as a venture capitalist and as a venture capitalist that looks across multiple different sectors is to identify where are the big trends going, um, where are the huge tailwinds. Um, a lot of VCs will talk about, you know, what do you favor more? Do you favor founder or do you favor idea? Um, and um, I have a particular perspective on that. But what I really, really like to see, regardless of which side of that debate you come on, is that you have a huge market tailwind behind you as well, because that can cover up and help and absolve a lot of other problems um, if the general direction of travel is in line with society. So that's the most important thing for me. Um, the fact that it makes us all feel great as well is a huge added bonus. Um, but I think it's far more exciting to me that this is the logical place for businesses to build and to make money and to be financial and to be sort of financially viable companies versus being the sort of I guess if you rewind 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, sort of impact-focused businesses where there was um, an implicit trade-off between financial returns and social impact. I think what's really exciting about this moment in time is that there isn't a trade-off. The two are completely aligned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. So um, I'm sure once you, you, know, you had your, your, your moments and you thought, okay, well, you, I want to make this, uh, this change, I'm sure there would have been people, you know, queuing out the door around the corner to have you joining their firms and you're joining their funds, but instead you took the, you know, the big leap to go and raise your own fund. Mm -hmm. um, what's, why did you do that? What, what's, what, what's, what particularly um, did you want to achieve? What, what makes your fund different? Sure. Okay. So I guess the motivation behind wanting to launch my own fund is I've always had this sort of entrepreneurial itch that I wanted to scratch at some point. Um, you know, on a personal basis, I'm conscious that life becomes ever more complex um, as you wait. And so the time is, is kind of, it's never better than now. Um, so I wanted to go out there and, and build something. Um, I also always felt a degree of imposter syndrome with founders as a VC not having ever built something of my own and saying, okay, I actually want to go there, get in the trenches and do something. Um, so that was the sort of the personal driving force behind me. And then in terms of the thesis behind D2, um, the, the idea behind D2 is that over the last five or 10 years, it has become um, an order of magnitude cheaper and faster to launch a business and to test and iterate new ideas, regardless of which sector you're in. And yet the venture industry has moved in the complete opposite spectrum, um, especially in the last couple of years, in terms of piling more and more equity finance into businesses very, very early on, which in our view creates a ton of risk and a ton of waste um, and ends up with founders um, 
owning very small shares of their business um, and a lot of very good businesses going under because they were prematurely brute forced with equity capital. So the thesis behind D2, we want to invest in uh, efficient founders that want to own more of their business at exit, want to scale and want to scale um, leanly, stay lean from a cost perspective. Um, and and build a sustainable, long-term, viable business. And we have, as a fund, um, a few tools in our locker to help businesses achieve that. Um, so our pitch is that we bring the right type of capital, the right business at the right time. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you do some very interesting uh, capital models, not just a traditional equity or equity debt. Um, the the hero models I thought was was you know very interesting. And when you say they don't want to own as much um, on exits, I think there's there's the, the caveat in that. Well, if they don't want to exit, you know, there's there's which is a very a very unusual way of looking at it. Can you tell us a bit more about the, the hero model? Sure. So the hero yeah. is, a, is a bit of an ex- experiment, and um, the the premise behind the hero is that the type of capital that you put into a business creates an incentive structure. And that might be implicit, um, but whatever type of capital you put in, be it debt, be it VC funding, be it crowdfunding, um, creates a different set of behaviors in that business because that capital has a different set of drivers. Um, so the hero is very simplistically, it's a safe note, which is a, a convertible instrument. Um, and if that company goes on and raises another round of financing, it converts into equity. So that looks exactly like VC equity. Um, but if they never raise another round, then it converts into a revenue share. And that revenue share lasts for a couple of years and then falls away. So what does that actually do in practice? Um, if a company follows the venture path and, and continually raises rounds of equity finance, then it's exactly as if they raised an equity round in the first place. So no difference, no trade-off there. If they don't, though, um, we think of two scenarios. Either that business um, becomes a small profitable business, not a venture outcome in terms of how we think about outcomes that we aim for, um, but a good business. And in that case, it represents the hero becomes an off-ramp. So that revenue share becomes an off-ramp from venture capital. That business is free to continue um, and uh, free to continue without the kind of uh, the burden of having a shareholder pushing you in a specific direction that isn't right for that company. And then there's the upside scenario where this business becomes a very large company um, and also a profitable business. And there, um, the rev share component ends up being about 75% cheaper, even in a very, very aggressive growth scenario, than had that business raised conventional equity capital. And there, the trade-off for us is, if that business has been very efficient, we want to reward them. We want to incentivize efficiency. We want to incentivize raising the capital that you need rather than the capital that you can go out and get. Um, and so that in that scenario, the hero is, is almost saying, um, look, here is the benefit of being efficient. Your cost of capital is coming way down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, it, it's an extremely founder-friendly way of looking at things, and it's quite, quite unusual. What's also very unusual is that you, 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 you put it all up on your website. Like, you, you have your model, you have your, your, your documentation, so this is exactly what it is. Um, love the transparency, but really, really unusual. What, what was your thinking behind it? So the idea is... The idea is we, we don't always use the hero, we use equity as well, and sometimes um, we use debt. We're building that capability in-house as well. Um, 
the ecosystem that we operate in is a collaborative one, and it's very rare that we ever do investments on our own. So we will be doing investments alongside other funds, family offices, and large individual investors. Um, and ultimately, what we want is for those investors to join us and to understand that this creates um, a better set of outcomes for founders. And so the only way to do that is to open source it, to show everyone all of the sort of the levers and bolts behind uh, the mechanism, um, and uh, to have other people buy into that as well. Okay, perfect. That makes that makes sense. Um, okay, and do you have a, like a, a general group of uh, collaborators that you normally work with, or is it uh, does it change on investment to investment? It changes on investment to investment. Um, so some funds that we work with are sector specific, other funds are stage specific, geography specific, and so um, we work with quite a wide variety of other funds. There are some funds where we have. Um, close relationships with sort of kindred spirits, and um, we're very open. We share ideas with, um, but we try and um, we try and be very collaborative with everyone in the ecosystem. I think it's the best way uh, to ultimately build a franchise. Um, but in terms of your portfolio of investing companies so far, uh, climate tech does seem to be you know two thirds. Yep. Um, um, but it's, it's one of the four verticals that you look to look to look to invest in. Could you first off define climate tech for us? It's like these these two words kind of are often put together, but they don't normally hang too well. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of an amorphous blob at the moment. That term, isn't it? So the way that we think about it, um, and it is quite broad, is um, companies that are either actively reducing emissions or are seeking to mitigate the impact of climate change, um, and that is intentionally broad. As a fund, we need to be guided by where founders are building, where founders are going. So we have a view of the future of the world, um, but we don't want to be dogmatic on that. And if brilliant founders are building in areas that we haven't thought of um, that could fall under that umbrella, we don't want to miss that. And where are the boundaries then? Like you have tech companies that would like to have climates attached to them and you have climate companies like have tech attached attach to them. So I think it's back to that point around product-based businesses. So that's the sort of North Star that we won't deviate from. So again, we wouldn't be investing in a consulting business. Um, we wouldn't be investing in a services-based business. We're looking for those companies where um, there is a tech component, where there is that kind of core product, be it either a physical product or a software product, um, that once you've gone through that initial build phase, um, the potential scalability is non-linear. Okay. Um, but in the climate space, tech is a bit, uh, there's, tech maybe looks, I'm just, I'm thinking of like the carbon capture and storage, mm. like the side of things. Um, there's definitely technology in the broader, broader sense attached mm -hmm. to it, but it's not technology sitting in front of a laptop. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's a technology of like, how do you extract this in an industrial process? Yeah. Yeah. And does that, does, does that still, still fit or is it like, is it, is it, is it a laptop? Is it, is it, is it? Yeah, it's a fair question. So, um, we talked about this briefly, um, when we first met, but we think about um, interesting opportunities on the spectrum of a barbell. So um, on one end of the spectrum, we have software businesses where um, the, the scalability of software is well known. Um, it's it's um, enormously capital light if, you, if you're running it in the right way. On the other end of the spectrum, um, we look at a lot of deep tech businesses which are very IP heavy. And again, that IP creates emote, um, creates huge scalability. The guys in the middle, um, where you are dealing with an established process, an established technology, and you are seeking to bring that into the mainstream, you're seeking to deploy that, is less interesting, it's less of a um, 
a good use case for venture capital. So we try and think of things as, okay, is it fitting into one of these two buckets on either end of that barbell? And if it's not, it's probably not the right fit for our model of capital. Okay. So um, in reality then, what does a climate tech startup look like? <laughs> okay, so... Um, I, I, I love the analogy, but what's in, in the real world, what does it look like? In the real world. Okay, so we have looked at several businesses on the software end of the spectrum, for example, this year that deal with carbon credits, be it either carbon insurance businesses, carbon trading platforms, um, carbon ratings agencies, those all fit under that software side of the bucket. Um, on the other end of the barbell, um, we've looked at businesses, for example, that are dealing with new processes for producing ammonia um, or businesses um, focused on how you can extract energy more efficiently from algae. Um, that is more on the deep tech side for us. Um, so it gives you a bit of an idea of the, the, the bookends, as it were. One of the biggest themes in kind of public markets at the moment um, is the whole sustainability ESG side. Um, and it's it's how you measure it, it's how you understand it, how you recognize it. Uh, and even in the much larger companies, which have got a lot of data and a lot of humans to throw at things and a lot, a lot of ways of like spreadsheets they can fill out, it's really, really hard. Um, how do you deal with that in the in the in, in this in the small side, like in the, the venture sure. cap, capital side, the very early stages? So this may be a little bit of a controversial opinion, but I really, really hate the term ESG and the idea of producing um, a single number that, in some way, puts that company on a pedestal and says, "Hey, you're doing a fantastic job." Because I think you are taking disparate strands of qualitative data, trying to quantify it and then trying to establish an absolute metric across different pools, which is inherently dangerous. Um, I also think that there are some of my peers in the venture industry that try to apply that to early stage businesses as well. And in my experience, that tends to become a bit of a tick box exercise at best, and at worst, starts to push the company into um, quite a... Uh, quite a process-heavy model of reporting, um, and again, becomes quite meaningless. So our focus is actually, what is this business's fundamental purpose? What are they aiming to do? And is that making an impact in the sector that they are operating in? I'm not going to benchmark one business operating in ammonia production versus a business operating in carbon insurance because they are completely different companies. Um, what I am going to look at is the impact that they can have in their particular sector. Okay, okay. Um, so where's the balance between impact in the sector and financial returns? Absolutely. So financial returns comes first for us as a venture investor. Um, and per my earlier comment, I think increasingly impact in a sector is linked to financial returns. I don't think you can be operating in the climate space, have a very, very low impact, and also generate great financial returns long term. I don't think that's, um, that's a really durable model. Mm -hmm. Okay. And if you were looking at a tech company, like a pure tech company that's not in there, but it had, it had the... Uh, no, sorry, I, I appreciate This may be a tricky question. Mm. Uh, but if you had a, um, a company that you thought would be making some really solid financial returns, but would be making no impact or a negative impact for, I don't know, a, a, like an enormous data center, which is incredibly hungry with, 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 with energy, but you think they're doing something very novel and something that's quite, that's quite cool outside of the uh, sustainability field, would you go, okay, we can 
we can live with that. Yeah. Or would you go, no, actually, sustainability is... We need to be true to our, true to our sustainable, sustainable principles. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, nice hypothetical. Uh, I think what we look at with every single investment opportunity is... Is, is what, that, what does that long-term future look like? So we are early stage investors, so we make investments for a minimum of 10 years every single time. And so what is acceptable today might not be acceptable in the future. And so we are always thinking um, out that sort of decade horizon and saying, okay, what is society likely to value at that point? Um, and you might have a business which is enormously valuable today, but is not sustainable on a kind of five to 10 year horizon. So we think that largely self-solves. So for example, technologies applied to the oil and gas industry, they might be hugely revenue generating today, but we don't see a long-term future for those. So unless there is a strategy which involves moving outside of that industry, applying their technology to other sectors, it's a hard sell for us. Understand, understand, yeah, okay. So, okay, I'll take it back a step first. Uh, going back at a time when I was you know, first uh, getting involved in the, the whole kind of sustainability and uh, re renewable side of things, uh, the, the only people who were, who were getting involved were people who were fundamental believers. Like, you know, they truly, they, they thought it was really important and they were doing it because there was no market, there was no, there was no mm. money to be made and it was something you really had to believe in to, to, to be there. Um, what it sounds like now is that you can have a whole different category of people coming into it because they see it as, as it being a long-term, a, a sensible long-term strategy. So they don't, not, not personally motivated by, by the climate side of it, but they see it's a very sensible place for them to be doing business. Is, is, is that fair? That's a great question. I, I think there is definitely that element. And when we see, we talk to founders operating in um, the climate tech domains, we meet plenty of founders who don't have a, um, you know, a sort of inherent moral drive towards what they're doing. Um, they see an opportunity which they are passionate about and they are pushing forward for that, but they are business people first and I would say climate tech enthusiasts second. Um, it's hard to disaggregate the two because I think there isn't, there's, there's a great feeling involved with building a business that has a net positive benefit for society. Um, but I think the primary motivator for a lot of those individuals is building um, a durable, large, profitable business versus going out to save the world. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, again, back to the, this is a very good wealth creation opportunity. I, I, I think so. I think, um, and I think that's really important, right? And, and you know, this, this, this specific topic, I'm always quite surprised in the climate domain because there are a lot of people who have spent a long time in that industry who are kind of, I think, of the sort of crusaders and have pushed that whole movement forward. And that's fantastic. But I find a lot of the time that those individuals um, almost um, sort of look down on people that are moving into the sector because they see it as a good business opportunity. When I think in reality, this is what's required for this whole space to become truly mainstream. It has to be the obvious business decision as opposed to a sacrifice that you make um, because you believe passionately that that is the future. Um, so I think this is, this is the, the logical next step. And I think it's also, it's fantastic that we're at that point. Yeah, yeah, I no, fully agree. Over recent days, um, I had, okay, it must be up to over a dozen people now who um, were until recently or still are, but are looking, looking at exiting um, in, the, in the tech sector, mm. um, who are saying, listen, I, I'm out of here. You know, mm. I'm, either, I'm either being being exited from one of, one of the big places because of you know the, the current economic situations, or um, I just want to just want to change. And mm. that's the, the first time in 
in my in my career in this that I've had so many people in such period, such a short period of time saying saying we're we're leaving this we want to get into into what you're doing I think it's fantastic you know we need we need people like we're we're, we're still at a, at a t- tiny percentage of the amount of renewables and uh, sustainability that we need to we need people and I'm curious in terms of having spoken to all those individuals what you think their motivation is by and large, there, there's a part of, yes, we believe that this is important. And it may be that it's just because they're talking to me. But there's also people who will be um, looking at us saying, I've got this great idea. Like, just as you said, I was talking to a guy this morning who was in my class. Uh, and he said, uh, I've got this, this brilliant, you know, um, startup idea. And I want to push, push by sustainability. I, like, I think it's, re- it's really exciting. But he's an old um, kind of visa guy, like kind of, kind of like was, worked, worked in kind of in, in that kind of financing side of things. Um, and he's doing it because of the intellectual challenge to it. And he just thinks it's really cool and it's really exciting as opposed to the, you know, the, the passion for it. He's going to try, try and change the world. Uh, so it's a mix, uh, but it's, it's important. Getting someone, someone like him, who's very smart, very capable human, human being into, the, into this space is, has to be a positive. Yeah, completely. Excellent. Okay, so can we uh, kind of dig in a little bit more into your, your process? Like first, sure. Like, like you know, what particular you look for, what um, kinds of ideas uh, most excite you at the moment? Sure. Okay, um, so our process, we see um, this year, over the last 12 months, we've seen three and a half thousand opportunities. Um, so we see a lot of volume. And um, I think uh, this is something that founders often don't appreciate in that we have to screen very, very quickly um, at the top of the funnel. And so we have to winnow that three and a half thousand down to, let's say, 350 um, with a minute or two on each opportunity, which means um, we have to make very fast calls and we're frequently wrong as a result. So um, getting that opportunity set down as fast as possible is really important for us. Um, Then um, in terms of the actual process of making an investment, um, we'll usually have a long conversation with the founder, an hour um, with the founder. If we're excited, we'll start to dig in. We'll do a bunch of research on the space. We'll start talking to experts that understand the space. Um, Then a couple other meetings with the founder and then we have an investment committee um, where we discuss every opportunity um, and then we make a final decision on whether or not to invest. And so that process can be as fast as two weeks. And so to put that into context, you're making it two weeks, you make a decision that's going to last for the next decade. Um, so it is a um, really, really condensed process for the commitment that you're making. Hugely, hugely. Yeah. And uh, are there many, um, you got your investment committee, but any kind of external advisors? Like, do you have like kind of lawyers and accountants calling yes. and other stuff? Yes, yeah, we do. Yeah. So um, we have sector specialists um, across a wide variety um, of different sectors. Um, we sometimes go to our LPs when they have a specific set of expertise in a given sector. So, for example, um, we have um, the CEO of a carbon accounting business as one of our smaller investors in the fund. Whenever we look at a carbon-based business, we tend to send it past him. Um, so um, LPs, really, really helpful. And then we have kind of friends of the fund. Um, so right now we're looking at a deep tech business and there is a friend of the fund who did her PhD on that specific technology. So really, really useful to get her perspective. Um, so we definitely lean on people that actually know what they're talking about when we're talking about tech. Perfect, perfect. And are there any particular challenges and that are specific to the climate tech space? Yes, now there's a ton of challenges specific to the climate tech space. Um, So the climate tech space as a whole is still quite immature. It's come on a huge amount in the last, I would say, really five years, um, and maybe slightly more. Um, But the counterparties that you're dealing with 
are exactly the same as they were sort of five, 10, 15 years ago. So selling into large utilities, for example, um, has a very specific set of challenges. Um, selling into large energy companies, integrating energy companies is also quite tough to navigate. And so you have an ecosystem where capital has moved on hugely, founders have moved on hugely, um, the support network, the incubators, the accelerators have all evolved dramatically from where they were 10 years ago. Um, and society's moved on as well. But in many cases, your customer base has not changed at all. Um, and so that I would always highlight is the biggest, biggest challenge um, for climate tech businesses is, okay, you've got a great idea, you've got a really interesting piece of technology, you can get through those TRL levels, you get up to sort of seven, eight, and you have to start interacting with your future customers, and the whole thing starts moving out to the right. Capital needs to be very patient. Absolutely. It's a long time to get through those guys. It really is. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Rene, there's a, a segment of the market that's very fast moving, and then there's the inertia. And the inertia, like it's 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 cause it's it's those 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 guys, of course, and the big utilities. But it's also governments, it's also mm -hmm. regulations, it's also all the planning controls. Also, it's all the whole systems around it is just not set up for the the speed of change that's needed to be done here. Do you have people within your your fund that, that work with company with your with your investee companies trying to get them through these these, these difficulties? Yeah, that's a great question. So. Um, we're still iterating as a fund. We're very young. We're sort of, you know, eight months old um, as a fund. So we're still trying to figure out exactly um, how we can be most impactful for our portfolio founders. Because of the stage that we invest, because we're very, very early, we tend to be quite hands-on as investors. We spend a lot of time with our founders. Um, right now, where we seem to be having the most impact is helping founders source uh, great talent at sort of C-suite level. Um, so we've successfully placed a couple of individuals into portfolio companies, um, helping with introductions to future funders, so larger investors, private equity funds, large growth stage VC funds, debt providers in some cases um, as well. And then kind of rolling up our hands, rolling up our sleeves rather, um, on product. And that is really relevant in some cases, um, less so in others, but that's actually acting as a sounding board for, okay, we want to build in this specific direction, we think this is the right path to go in, and being that test, being that foil, being that, that counterpoint um, for them. In terms of as those businesses grow and when they're actually interacting with these companies, I think that's a little bit TBC for us at the moment. So I'm trying to balance from our perspective what the role of a VC should be with those companies because I think there's a lot of VCs that say, yeah, we do everything, um, we do everything badly, <laughs> but we do everything. Um, and what I want to do is I want to ensure that whatever we choose to focus on in terms of support, that we're the best at it. Um, and that we really, really lean into that um, because I think otherwise you just end up being a drag on the portfolio companies, not actually helping at all. You just make a lot of noise. Um, and on the, you know, on your on your thesis that um, all businesses to be to have a long term future need to be, you know, sustainable. Um, have you, in a hands on basis already, or would it be part of the plan to be trying to kind of nudge businesses? On the, along the sustainability route, just kind of saying, well, maybe you should do this, maybe you should look at that, maybe you should. Yeah, I think I think there's definitely a role for that, and you know, you know our, our perspective as an investor is we can never push a company to do anything. Um, we can advise businesses, and we've always we always do that, um, and our objective is to be that that sort of that first call that a founder makes um, and to take not just the good news and to be the sort of cheerleader there, but also take the bad news, um, be that sort of counsel. And so I think there's, there's definitely a role for us to play in terms of saying, look, that decision 
that you're making has potential long-term negative impacts here, here, and here. And, and sort of thinking, thinking laterally, because I think founders, everything is existential for them. Um, and they're making a decision which in here and now might make a lot of sense, but might also be laying the groundwork to our earlier conversation of actually creating a lot of pain for them down the track. Um, so do, should we take this particular contract? Should we build this particular feature? Should we go in that direction? I think it's our role at that stage to say, look, that's a great revenue opportunity right now, but have you thought about how that then might impact the future of the product um, and the durability of the business in the long term? So. It's, it's our role to counsel the company, to help the founder think of that. Ultimately, if the founder decides that they want to go in that direction, it's their business, it's their company. Um, if they choose not to take our advice, then fine. So that's interesting. So the only kind of levers that you have to pull are based on, um, like, are they purely advisories, based on like, your, your particular knowledge and your, your, your perspective on things. Did, did you have any other levers that, a, that can be used? a very, very big distinction here between early stage investors like us and later stage investors, be that either growth VC or private equity. So um, by and large, we won't take board positions, for example. We'll have the right to appoint um, a board position should a board be created. But these companies tend to be at the point at which we invest five to 20 people in companies, right? Having a board um, is a sort of a large degree of process and formality for a business that's changing on a week by week, month by month basis. Um, we have a lot of a lot of sort of de jure power um, in terms of our share class, in terms of the nature of the shareholders agreement, but these are really brute force levers to be pulling um, that very, very rarely get pulled. Um, the softer side, um, the kind of the de facto power that needs to be built with trust and so it's, it's on us really to demonstrate that we, our advice is sound, um, that we create value, and ultimately to become that trusted advisor that founders want to listen to, that they take the advice on board and actually act on it. Um, but doing a sort of command and control strategy just doesn't work at the early stage. So what, what's the ambition from here? Is it just to continue to grow in the very early stage or would there be the idea of growing, of having a second fund just be more in the kind of growth VC or what's, what, what's the plan from here? Yeah, absolutely. So I think like all um, VC funds, the, the, the kind of core strategy is ultimately to create that enduring franchise and so to move f through fund vintages to get larger such that we can make a bigger impact. Um, I would love to continue exploring what we're in the very early stages of doing on the debt side, such that we have lots of different sources of capital, lots of different types of capital that we can bring so we can fund a broader array of businesses. I think part of the limitation um, of where we stand at the moment is the same limitation that every VC fund has, that we can only look at a very specific type of business because of the nature of our capital. So if we can diversify um, the types of capital that we have, we can look at a broader array of businesses. And I think, especially in the climate tech space or the sustainability space more broadly, there are a lot of interesting opportunities which don't fit the model for venture capital, um, but are eminently backable for the right source and the right type of capital. So I would love it if we can start looking um, at a broader array of businesses. Okay, very good. I think kind of, kind of neatly enough lead us on because we're talking about different type, types mm. of, uh, of, um, of venture capital businesses. Um, could we talk a little bit about your time in kind of Shell Ventures and what the, the difference between um, the, the VC that you're in now mm. and the corporate VC? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so corporate VC um, has 
a bunch of strengths and a bunch of challenges, and, and financial VC has a different set of strengths and challenges. So the strengths of a corporate VC are that you have, first of all, evergreen capital, which especially in the climate space is really important. It can take a long time for these technologies to mature, um, and having a patient backer is really, really valuable. Um, the second element that I felt very strongly as a VC within Shell was that you have the benefit of enormous amounts of industry knowledge and experience. And so if you're looking at a new technology, chances are someone in the business has spent their entire career working on that specific type of technology and you can bring that out. And then I think the promise of all corporate VC is the ability to secure partnerships and contracts for your portfolio companies into the larger beast. Um, and without the ventures arm, that can be really challenging. These are small businesses, there's huge enterprises. Having that sort of go between that translator between startup and corporate is really, really valuable. The downside um, of working um, in a corporate VC and corporate venture capital in general is that you tend to have a lot more process, a lot more sort of systems and controls in place, which means that it's harder to work with early stage businesses. It tends to be a better fit for kind of growth stage companies um, just because of the timelines involved on the corporate side and some of the, uh, some of the demands from a procedural perspective. Financial VC, the difference is the, the advantage are that you can move incredibly quickly. You can be very nimble. You can evolve with the market in real time. You can say, actually, I'm seeing this really interesting thing happening over here. Let's go and explore this. Let's do this. Um, so you're completely unencumbered in that perspective. Um, you also have a lot more latitude in terms of how you can work with your portfolio companies, what you can say outside and publicly, and what you can do to support them. The flip side is, you are one of a litany of other funds. Um, you don't have the benefit of a big brand name. You don't have the benefit of um, a business that can help support those founders. And so you need to help in different ways. Um, and to the earlier conversation about how you DD opportunities, you're reliant on building that network of people that can help you versus having that captive network behind you that's always there. Okay, perfect. What did you find the the greatest advantage, I suppose, you, you already talked about this in some way, um, but the greatest advantage of being within that type of large organization as opposed to, um, to, to where you are and also the greatest uh, disadvantage. Sure. So I'm, I'm a very firm believer that in the energy transition, especially, um, without, the, without the large energy majors playing an active role in it, it will just take that much longer. And so I think working um, within a company like Shell, you're at the very, very sort of sharp end of the spear of the energy transition. And you're arguably working in the place where you can have the largest impact. Um, so I really, really enjoyed that aspect of it. And seeing a business of Shell's size moving in that direction is really compelling. Um, and the vast, vast, vast resources um, that are there at your disposal. For example, if you're talking about a hydrogen business, you have Shell's enormous global liquids distribution network there um, that's coming to bear. That is an advantage to those hydrogen businesses and for you as an investor in those businesses that very few um, other companies or funds for that matter can actually really compete with. So huge, huge advantage there and, and really exciting to see that transition happening in real time. Um, the disadvantage is that there's always going to be disagreements in terms of how fast to move, which direction to move, you know, what to prioritize. Um, nobody, I think, has all of the answers at any one time here. And so there's a frustration when you say, oh, I think this is a really exciting direction. I think we should be going here. And other people are like, no, 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 we should be going here. So um, that, um, that process is iterative. 
and um, you don't have that, I think, you know, when you're working in a smaller fund, you just say, okay, we're excited, we're interested by this, that's what we're going to go do. Um, so there's a lot more of um, sort of stakeholder management that's required. Okay. So it was um, the the move from kind of you know, the, the big with all the advantages mm. um, to the to the small with a far more limited set of advantages. Yep. But, but but certain was it was it kind of it was personality driven. It was it was, it was because you, you you felt that you could be that this would just fit better with who you are and what you want to do with your life. I think it was um, it's it's this desire to create something um, to start from scratch and, and to give it a shot um, and to sort of have a much much stronger personal impact in terms of, okay, wh how, what can I do? What are the types of companies that we can invest in? How can I help those businesses? Um, and how can we move faster on all of this? Um, and it, you, you ride a roller coaster, you ride an absolute roller coaster. And I have, as a result of launching a fund um, and having started from scratch, got so much empathy now for founders that go through that process and go through that sort of fundraising um, dynamic and, um, uh, you know, the impact of every single one of my portfolio founders on um, on my mood, their ability to shift my mood is enormous. You know, you get a good piece of news on a Friday afternoon, you're just sort of flying for the weekend. Um, and then there's a setback and, you know, you, you focus and obsess and ruminate about how you can help there. Um, and it sort of consumes your thoughts. So it's... <laughs> I describe it as the sort of the most visceral form of venture capital that you could have, um, being a being a solo GP in a brand new fund. Um, so yeah, it's wild. It's a real roller coaster, and um, you know I've, I've learned a huge amount, and I'm continuing to learn. So. Okay. So that's a really interesting point. Like the, um, your, 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 the starting days, like pulling it all together, you know, doing the investment, doing the, like, how, how did that all happen? For mm, mm. It's, a, it's a funny sort of, it's a bit of a snowball effect, right? You start, um, you have an idea, you start to talk to people. Um, those, sort of, those people that you talk to early on have a huge, huge bearing, at least for me, in terms of where you're going to take things and their endorsement, their support creates that momentum and things start to just really spiral, which is fantastic. Um, and then I think when you make your first couple of investments, it starts to feel really, really real. Um, and um, the, the biggest observation that I've made is my feeling of commitment to each company that I invest in under the D2 banner is, is several orders of magnitude higher than I would expect anyone in a larger fund um, or in a corporate to feel because these are you know, we're a small fund. Every single investment that we make really matters, really has a bearing um, on uh, on the performance of our funds. So we we really, really work hard there. Um, and uh, and I think, you know, that's, that's an advantage for founders, right? I think that's part of the reason for choosing a small sort of young fund um, or an emerging manager is to say, okay, this individual is really invested in us really personally. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, where was the point where you realized, oh, this is happening? Like, mm -hmm. was it you getting your first, like, the cornerstone investor? Like, well, yeah. what's, you know, from when, when went to the conversation of people be, being supportive? They went, oh, I'm actually doing yeah, this. Yeah. So we had a, um, a large family office uh, committed to, um, to investing in the fund who became the cornerstone investor in the fund. Um, and their commitment got us to the point where we were at sort of minimum viable fund. And at that stage, I said, wow, okay, this is, this is, this is really happening. Um, and at that stage, sort of dominoes started to fall and another family office committed, another family office committed. Um, and, uh, and things started to, to really, really gather momentum at that point. So it's interesting how there's, a, there's an S-curve in everything, right? Um, and that first family office committing was the, was the bottom of that S-curve.
And um, are you are you still like raising funds, or have you, have you kind of you, you closed this, closed. The, 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 closed this first? Or yeah. Yeah. yeah, so we've closed we've closed this first fund, um, and now we're focused very much exclusively on making investments and supporting our portfolio. Um, we will probably make investments from this fund over the course of the next eighteen to twenty four months. Um, the target is to do twenty investments out of this fund. Um, we should close this year on five or six um, with a fair wind. Um, and then it is a 10-year fund life with two years of extension. So um, you're right at the very, very, very start of a long journey. Okay, very good. It sounds, I don't know what you were saying earlier on, that you were interested in, um, in, in, in having more opportunities and by having different funds and being able to look at different things. If you've got two and a half thousand, you know, things to look at to make that number of investments. I'm not mm. sure you need many more. Yeah, it's a great yeah. question. I think um, there's there's definitely a limit in terms of what a single individual within a fund can achieve. And so my aspiration is ultimately that we grow the team, um, that we're bringing in high quality individuals who sort of buy into the mission, who are aligned in terms of sort of cultures and behaviors with us, um, and that that's how we start to sort of really grow the impact of the fund. Um, because I'm very conscious, for example, that if, I, if, if we do 20 investments in, in this fund, um, we then have 20 portfolio companies uh, to support and we continue making investments. At some point, there's a trade-off in terms of can we support our existing portfolio um, or are we then prioritizing only new investments or are we only supporting a sort of small portion of that portfolio? So um, I'm very conscious that there is a limit on bandwidth to a, a single individual to a couple of individuals. Yeah. And kind of, so changing tax slightly, um, one thing that sort of was really interesting that you're involved in was the, the Clean Tech Challenge, mm. uh, the kind of London Business School and uh, University of London thing. Yeah, could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. so the Clean Tech Challenge is, um, is a clean tech competition run by LBS. Um, and these are very sort of early idea stage uh, initiatives, um, some by students and some by people that are sort of more loosely connected um, to that student ecosystem. Um, what I love about that is it's at that sort of point of maximum passion where someone has something that they um, have discovered, have uncovered, have researched and say, you know what, I think there's the basis for something really, really exciting here. Um, it's, um, it's really raw. It's, um, it's very unfiltered. Um, and I just really enjoy it because the start of that entrepreneurial journey is just total optimism and, uh, and excitement. So it's fun to be involved in. Yeah. Um, how long have you been, uh, been involved oh, in that? Uh, since 2020. 2019. Right, right. Yeah. And was any was was part of that experience any any way involved in your thinking? Oh, I really want to get more into that and the kind of yeah, chances absolutely. of detail. Abs absolutely, it is. And I think um, I think you only work as a venture capitalist if you're passionate about startups. And and so I'm very very passionate about early stage businesses. Um, and so if there is a way to sort of give a bit of time and hopefully be helpful to some of these ideas and, and some of these individuals, then absolutely. That's, that's a great use of my time. And any that you think, oh, we should have a conversation. I'll put on, the, I'll take off this hat, put this hat on and say, come on over here. <laughs> uh, I, there's always that in the back of my mind. Absolutely. Um, I think that the, the Clean Tech Challenge, a lot of people use it as a, um, a sort of experiment pool um, and are just testing ideas. Um, so for us, the more interesting thing is the individuals versus the ideas at that stage and saying, okay, you might be a very, very interesting individual to, to keep touch with. So it might not be this idea, um, but you, the way that you're thinking about problems and solutions is, um, is really appealing to us. So I'm more focused on the individuals at that stage than I am on the idea. 
I know you also mentioned that part of you feel part of your role is to be introducing people and trying to get, mm. um, you know, you should be working with those people and whatever. Have you found any kind of connections you could draw from the clean tech challenge into portfolio companies or associates? So absolutely. So um, we regularly make introductions, or I make regularly make introductions for companies that I've interacted with either on the clean tech challenge or just actually more broadly, um, where it's like, do you know what? We're probably not the right partner for you, but I know X, Y, and Z who could be really useful um, from an investor perspective. And also what we've done a couple of times is say, do you know what's not, not necessarily the right investment for us, but we know an individual who really, really understands the space who you should be talking to. Um, so perhaps that individual becomes a board member or an advisor to that business. Um, so with my background, I know a lot of people, for example, that um, have worked in kind of conventional energy, have huge, huge knowledge um, in, say, sub-Saharan Africa, dealing with governments there, um, who can be really, really useful for um, energy impact businesses operating down there. And so making those connections um, where these two sets of individuals are from completely different backgrounds and would never encounter each other, um, I think it's really rewarding. It's really great when that comes together and it sort of creates a meaningful partnership. I'm a big, big, big believer in, in paying it forward. I think this ecosystem is tiny. Um, and if you, um, if you do right by people and you make those connections where really it's very easy for you to do that, um, it tends to have a way of coming back positively to you. Yep, I follow the same philosophy myself. Yeah, it's a, it's a good one. And was, have you had a, a big kind of aha moment and oh, that's brilliant uh, on the Clean Tech Channel where somebody just came across an idea that you thought was to change the world? <laughs> oh, not, not yet. I remain really optimistic that that will come. Um, I have seen a bunch of aha moments recently coming from um, some of the incubators and accelerators that are, um, are doing really, really good work on the climate side. I think Carbon 13 at the moment is really starting to hum and produce some phenomenal companies and teams. Um, I think Entrepreneur First is doing some interesting things around climate as well and is, I think, I believe, starting a climate-specific cohort, which for a generalist accelerator is a, is a big thing, is a big moment. Um, so we're seeing some really interesting companies come out of those too. Um, and some of the European incubators as well. Well, as we uh, roll towards a close, I uh, would like to uh, first, you know, get, kind of pick your brains on uh, kind of on, on, you know, what you think the future might look like, and also get uh, advice for you know the two different strands strands of, mm. of, 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 of worlds that worlds that you work in. Um, first, on the kind of looking towards the future, uh, what kind of trends do you see in the the kind of clean tech market? Where, where, where what do you think it? Where will we be in like five or so or six years, and what's what? What are the big overarching things we need mm -hmm. to be looking for? So I, I think from a from a consumer perspective, um, decarbonizing heat and the home is for me just one of the absolute imperatives. Obviously, we've made huge strides in electric vehicles. I think in ten years' time, it will be very very unlikely um, that uh, that people will choose to buy an ICE vehicle brand new. I think everyone will be purchasing EVs, and I think that will move far faster than perhaps as a society we expect it will. Um, and the same with installing solar panels on your roof, et cetera. But I think heat, um, especially with the sort of the nature and the age of British housing stock is the real number one challenge in terms of people's day-to-day um, -day lives. Um, so I would love to see more innovation happening in that and companies really focused on actually rolling that out at scale. There are huge, huge challenges around supply chain, around, um, uh, around installation capacity at the moment for things like ground source and air source heat pumps. So there's a couple of companies working and doing some really interesting things in that space at the moment, which I'm excited about. Um, I'm interested also in how behavioral change 
um, at a societal level starts to impact upon consumption more broadly. So um, does air travel become increasingly uh, unacceptable for society? Do people start to sort of say guiltily, well, you know, we're going to be going on holiday down to southern Spain this year, and but we'll, we'll, we'll take the train, something like that. So I think that's really, really exciting. I think it's, it's also really interesting to see where people's diet um, is going to head to as well. Um, I think there's been a huge amount of enthusiasm um, for alternative proteins. Just haven't quite seen it break through into the mainstream yet, um, but I remain... Um, yeah, vegetables are better, seriously. <laughs> as a, well, <laughs> indeed, yeah. As a, as a sort of vegan myself, I'm, I remain really optimistic that that is going to hit into the mainstream um, at some point. And then more broadly on the technology side of things, I think some of the businesses that are being built in very, very hard to abate sectors like steel, like ammonia, um, like hydrogen are... Um, hugely, hugely exciting. I think your average consumer isn't really going to feel that impact day to day, um, but the, 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 the sort of the system level impact that some of those businesses can create is, is fascinating. And the third area for me, um, because I'm a bit of a finance nerd, um, I'm super, super interested with the future of carbon markets and how perhaps mandatory carbon markets and voluntary carbon markets potentially start to come together. Um, and what that future looks like. I think there is a huge role to play um, from a regulatory and government perspective in terms of applying carrot and stick um, on carbon and how that then informs business behavior and consumer choices. So I think there's some really, really fascinating stuff happening there, some really strong potential um, and how that then cascades down to what companies are doing um, beyond that um, is really intriguing. Fantastic. Thank you. Very, very Brilliant summary. <laughs> really brilliant summary. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> now on to the, the little bits of advice. Mm. Uh, so first off, what advice would you give for a potential founder or someone who's looking to be mm -hmm. you know, going out and uh, you know, and you know, getting a, mm -hmm. ultimately having a conversation with someone like you, get, get, get investment? What kind of key message would you would you give to? I, I think the key message, the key, two key messages um, that I would give is, is first of all, be optimistic. Um, go for it. Give it a shot. Um, I think we are increasingly, as a, um, as a country in the UK, adopting more of a Silicon Valley mindset in terms of it's better to give it a crack um, than just to never do it at all. And so be optimistic, be brave. Um, the second element is seek advice. There are a whole generation of people that have worked in the clean tech domain that have huge experience um, that I'm surprised a lot of founders don't go back and seek the advice from. So I think there's... That's that optimism, that bravery, people saying, I'm going to go in, I'm going to build this thing, but I'm not going to speak to anyone that's ever worked in this space before. Um, and I find, I find that surprising. So um, I think seek advice from a wide variety of people, seek that experience, and really, really understand your value chain because this market, this sector is very different from enterprise software, for example. Um, you've got a very, very complex set of stakeholders and you really need to understand that. And there's a bunch of people out there that are very generous with their time, spent their lives building in those domains um, and can help. Yeah, brilliant. And uh, the last uh, piece of advice would ask for someone who, let's say, like you know, sitting on the, on, on the Ember, and uh, would be interested in um, coming and joining, you know, joining, joining you or joining up, uh, starting a firm, or whatever else. What particular skill do you think that they should be trying to trying to hone in on? Yeah, so I think um, hustle, which is such a hard, intangible <laughs> um, concept. I think you need to have the drive to go out and get something without a brand 
um, without a name behind you. Um, so, so often that just relies on can you walk into a room full of people and can you try and meet every single person in that room by the end of that particular session? Um, and can you um, get in front of people and sort of put yourself out there, as it were? Um, it's a very, very um, nebulous concept, uh, but it's a really, really hard one to, to actually get good at. And it just relies on, on you potentially running the risk of looking like a bit of an idiot sometimes, um, getting out of your comfort zone. Um, but what I'm consistently amazed about in this space is how willing people are to talk to you if you just go up and introduce yourself and have that conversation. And so that grit, that determination, that ability to create something from nothing is the number one characteristic, I think, um, that we look for. Thanks again for all this time. It's been, been a brilliant conversation. Everyone's really, really, really fun. Really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you very much for joining us on that conversation. We hope that you enjoyed it. hope that you uh, learned something. Uh, if you did enjoy it, please feel free to leave a five-star review and to subscribe to any of our channels and we'll be sure to keep you updated on future productions. This series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. These are conversations that you just can't afford to miss.